What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? Where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to the Backwoods Horror Stories podcast. The stories you are about to hear are real. At least they are to the people who experience them. These stories are meant to entertain you. But remember, they happen to real people. So the next time you venture out into the woods alone, don't forget to keep a flashlight handy. You don't want to end up starring in your own Backwoods Horror Story. Now turn down the lights. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. The Martin family had downsized their life. A workplace injury devastated Eric, and Shelly had left her job to take care of her husband. And as a result, they were looking for a less expensive place to live. Shelly had found a beautiful older farm in Palmyra that was just what they needed. It was surrounded by dense woods. Eric's family had always been hunters, and his fairly extensive collection of guns was always a bone of contention with Shelly. With the help of his son, Sean, Eric built a strong box to hold his guns under lock and key in the barn. Eric and Shelley had a routine of having a cup of coffee on their screened-in porch, provided it wasn't too cold outside. One night, they noticed some strange pulsating lights down past the tree line. At first, Sean thought it was a poacher with a flashlight. Something didn't seem right. Shelley thought it was unnatural, too. So Eric and Sean headed out to the field to investigate. As they approached the woods, the lights went out. It was so quiet, the snap of a tree branch underfoot echoed. Eric and Sean went around with their flashlight off, hoping to catch any potential poacher unaware. Eric began to feel something far beyond any fear he had ever felt hunting. All Eric and Sean found was each other, not even a track on the ground to give them any hint of what they'd seen. Chelsea's boyfriend Nathan came by for a visit, and they decided to go for a walk in the woods with the dogs. The dogs ran ahead of them, catching some sort of a scent. When Chelsea and Nathan caught up, the dogs were rooting around by some large hole in the ground. Nathan had the feeling that the hole had been dug with care. Chelsea had a bad feeling about the whole thing, and she urged him to leave. And finally, he agreed. But what had the dogs found? It was Memorial Day weekend, and Shelley was making the evening coffee. 
For some reason, the dogs didn't want to go outside, and they were staying in their pen. Something just wasn't right. Eric noticed that it was particularly quiet on this misty evening. When Eric heard an odd sound in the distance, he knew there was some sort of danger out there. Eric began to usher Shelly back into the house. She initially protested, but when she heard some rustling in the distance, accompanied by five sets of what looked like eyes looking back at them, she realized there was danger out there. They rushed into the house and locked the door. Eric knew it wasn't a bear, but it was something huge, and he felt like it was dangerous. The guns were in the barn, and Eric wasn't sure how he was going to keep his family safe in the house. He wanted to get to those guns, but Shelly begged him not to go outside. She went up to Chelsea's room and woke her daughter. Chelsea was half awake when she looked out the window, but she laid back down and went to sleep. All five of the creatures were still there. One stood up on its hind legs and looked right at Shelly. The creature was massive, hairy, with a wolf-like face and shiny crimson eyes. Eric felt the instinct to protect his family. With all the creatures at a distance, he thought he might be able to back the car up to the house close enough to get them out. Even with his disability, Eric went outside. Shelly went through the house closing all the windows, and she finally found the two hunting dogs cowering in a corner in one of the rooms. If the dogs were scared, Shelly was concerned. When Eric reached the porch, he realized that he might have the distance to get there. It was going to be the longest 20 feet of his life. He started to walk slowly towards the car. When he finally reached it, he grabbed the keys and tried to unlock the door, and that's when the motion sensor lights clicked on. Eric found himself face-to-face with one of these massive, hairy, bipedal wolf-like creatures. It tried to make its way into the light, but something stopped it, and it bolted off into the darkness. Eric made his way back to the house as fast as he could, and once inside, they decided to call the police. But the police didn't take him seriously. They just told Shelly to lock the windows and doors, and that's when they realized nobody else was coming. They were on their own. Shelly made her way back up to Chelsea's room so she could look out the window. She could see the entire farm from there. Eric stayed downstairs, frustrated and upset. Then it occurred to him. The creatures were afraid or hurt by the light. That had to be why they didn't attack him. When the creature tried to make its way into the light, something stopped it. So he made the decision to use the light to get out to the barn to get a gun. So he stepped outside and started flailing his arms in a desperate attempt to get the motion sensor lights to come back on. And when the lights did come on, he realized that they were eyes staring back at him. He was surrounded. He was being hunted. Eric knew then he had to get back inside the house, so he made his way back as quickly as he could, and he barely made it just before the light went off. Upstairs, Shelly could hear the creatures approaching, and they were just on the outside of the wall. She knew if they wanted in, they were going to get in. She realized that her family was being held hostage by these creatures, and they had no guns to protect themselves, and the police weren't coming. What were they going to do? Shelly woke Chelsea and they went downstairs. They grabbed everything in the house that they could use as a weapon, and they all went into the master bedroom and laid on top of the bed and waited for daylight to come. They continued to hear the creatures outside the house all night, and they remained petrified. They all realized that the only thing between them and certain death was the bedroom window. When morning came, they finally breathed a sigh of relief, and the creatures were gone. Eric called Sean, who came over to help look for tracks. They did find tracks, and they were huge with enormous claws. They showed that the creatures could walk on two feet. The same creatures had been hunting and stalking them. Were they werewolves? To this day, nobody knows. Orange, Texas, 1933
Solomon, the main witness who was a teenager at the time, was exploring the woods with a couple of his friends and fishing in several small ponds that they happened to stumble upon. By noon, the trio of adventurers had retreated to the edge of the winding stream that cut through the woods, and they sat down and ate a small lunch that his mother had thoughtfully prepared for them. But quite quickly, the friendly chatter between Solomon and his two friends came to a halt, when all three of them suddenly developed the ominous feeling that they were being watched. And indeed, they were. When they looked across the stream, they were shocked to see a huge wolf-like head partly protruding out from behind the dense undergrowth. As Solomon later explained, When the beast realized we had seen it, it fully emerged from its hiding place and it paced along the edge of the water, first one way, then the other, about five or six times. And while this creature was certainly wolf-like in appearance, in no way could it be considered a conventional one. Rather, Solomon explained, the creature was quite literally a monster. Easily ten feet high, it appeared to be incredibly powerful and possessed huge muscular limbs with a very thick neck and an overly elongated jaw with a hump on the top of its neck. While keeping Solomon and his friends in sight at all times, the nightmarish beast issued forth a continuous guttural growl, and it occasionally wrinkled its jaw as if it were poised to launch an attack. Yet, no such attack came. However, something else occurred that in many ways Solomon said was even more frightening. After a few minutes, the animal sat down and started to shake. It was at this point that matters became distinctly surreal. The creature, that was undoubtedly four-legged in nature, became enveloped in a slight green fog that lasted but just a minute. Then suddenly, it reared up on its hind legs. Still definitively wolf-like in appearance, its stance was now that of a large man. Interestingly, Solomon said that he got the distinct impression that the creature meant him and his friends no physical harm, but did seem to get some perverse delight and satisfaction in scaring the boys out of their collective wits. For perhaps 20 seconds, the mighty creature, which having adopted an upright stance, seemed even bigger than it had while walking on all four legs, snarled and snapped in what was perceived as a malevolent, hostile, and even sinister fashion. Most bizarre of all was the fact that the paws of the creature seemed to have shape-shifted into large man-like hands, albeit a pair covered in a thick coating of hair. Then, without warning, the animal turned and headed into the dense trees. Looking back at the boys only once and just before it finally disappeared. Not surprisingly, the stunned trio exited the woods at a high speed and breathlessly headed towards Solomon's house. The boys decided not to tell anyone of their unearthly encounter, probably correctly assuming that they would get a whipping for making up fantastic tales. Nevertheless, Solomon was adamant that his story was completely and utterly true. Somewhere near Piedmont, Missouri, 1930. The main witness, who was now 96 at the time, lived outside Piedmont on a farm that had been in his family since the 1850s. He lived there with his mother and father, grandmother, and his siblings. When he was a child, whoever was the youngest had to sleep on the porch of the house. But none of them wanted to sleep out there because they were afraid of the little people that would visit them at night. He remembered that his mother and grandmother had told stories that had been around since the Civil War about the little gray people that visited the farm at night. One night in particular, when he was 10 years old, He was lying in the bed on the porch when he saw a little gray being with big eyes walk up to the window and look inside at him. He was frozen in fear as the entity just kept staring at him. The next thing he knew, there were three of them, all about four feet tall, with no hair, big black eyes, and a small thin nose and mouth standing next to his bed. And he remembers thinking to himself, he had no idea how they got inside. 
He was even more afraid and wanted to pull the covers back over his face, but he couldn't. He doesn't remember what happened after that. The next morning he woke up and they were gone. They never appeared during the day. They only came at night. He never saw a craft of any type, but sometimes late at night, the family would hear a humming sound coming from the low depression area around the pond that was about 100 feet from the house. But no one ever went out to look to see what it was. He thinks they were all too afraid. They would often see small white balls of light about the size of a softball that would show up after dusk and fly around the farm, but nobody knew what they were. The kids were never allowed to play outside after dusk, and the whole family was inside the house after dark. Looking back, he said he thinks the older family members were afraid that the little people would come and take them. That's the term that his mother and grandmother used. They would say that the little gray people would come and take them at night, but always brought them back in the morning. It was almost like they were talking about fairies or something magical that was their little secret. It was not something they spoke about to other people. They kept it to themselves, and they still do to this day. He claims that he still sees them sometimes, only inside the house when he sleeps now. He sees them come in at night, usually late around 3 o'clock in the morning, but for some reason he just falls asleep and doesn't remember any interaction with them. He doesn't let anyone sleep on the porch. His children and grandchildren have also seen the gray people. They're not as afraid of them anymore. They just look at them as being visitors rather than something that will harm them. Southern Catskills, New York, summer of 1933. The main witness, John and his family, were picnicking on a grassy shore on a quiet lake located somewhere near the southern boundaries of the dark and haunting Catskills. They arrived at the lake at around 11 o'clock in the morning, and while his mother and his two sisters arranged the blankets near shore, John and his dad carried the food baskets and other items from the car. An approaching storm moved off towards the west and disappeared. Afterwards, John sat near the edge of the lake, tossing small bits of rolled-up bread into the water. These were quickly consumed by the fish that swam nearby. His sisters were playing some distance away, and his parents sat beneath some shady trees, making plans for a trip to Kingston to visit their relatives. Birds circled overhead, sensing the food, and they began landing nearby. John threw several pieces of bread in their direction, and they were seized eagerly by the flock of hungry fowl. As John stood up, he heard the sound of fluttering wings. Turning around, he saw a large bird behind the bush. It was only visible for a second or two before it disappeared from view. He noticed that it looked rather strange. Several moments later, the bird appeared from its place of concealment. Immediately, John realized he had never seen this species like this before. It stood approximately 18 inches high. It was black in color and had a long pointed beak and very weird looking eyes. He threw some bread in its direction and the strange bird carried it into the bush. As the odd looking bird walked away, John noticed a small string dangling from both sides of its beak and across its long neck. To John, it resembled the reins of a horse. The bird came forward and looked around again, but it didn't see any more food, so it returned to the bush. A few seconds later, it took flight. To his amazement, John spotted a little man sitting atop its back. The small man was holding the reins and guiding the bird skyward. The bird appeared to have difficulty gaining altitude due to the extra weight. As the strange creature circled, John called out, Look! and pointed skyward. His parents turned and the mysterious bird and its little passenger skimmed across the water, then shot upward, disappearing over the top of the trees. As the bird circled, John saw the little man carrying a piece of bread under his arm. It appeared that the little man was waving in John's direction. Near Nipawin, Saskatchewan, Canada, 
summer of 1933. During the hot summer, stories drifted into Nippon that some of the homesteaders as well as a forest tower ranger had been observing strange lights in the sky and near the ground. Whatever it was, they had been seeing it for the better part of a week. The land to the northwest of Nippon near the Tobin Lake area is made up of rolling hills and low-lying marsh. Parts of it had begun to be farmed just a few years earlier, and it was without improvement because of the local marsh. Most of the town folks who heard about the strange lights explained them away as swamp gas, a convenient scapegoat that still gets used today. Fortunately, not everyone in Nippon was convinced that the stories were based on nothing more than hot air, and shortly after midnight that summer night, Two men and a woman jumped in a small pickup and drove to the area where the lights had been reported to have been seen. They were not disappointed as the glow on the horizon gradually grew brighter as they drove on. After driving as close as they could on the rough trail, they got out and hiked through the woods in the direction of the glow. They were blocked a quarter of a mile or less from reaching the source of the glow by a strip of muskeg that was too boggy to risk in the middle of the night. But it was close enough. From their vantage point, they were able to make out that the light was coming from an oval-shaped object that was domed at the top and slightly rounded on the bottom. The craft was supported by legs, and from a central doorway or hatch, about a dozen figures could be seen going up and down a ladder-like stairway. The occupants appeared to be shorter than the average man, and they were all dressed in what appeared to be some silver-colored suit or uniforms. All appeared to be wearing helmets or ski caps, and they were busy running around repairing the craft. There was a strange sort of quiet that surrounded the area. And although the occupants were scurrying about busy doing their repairs, not a sound could be heard. The three eyewitnesses stared in silent amazement at what was going on and nobody even thought to speak out. The bright orange glow that illuminated from the craft lit up the surrounding area and the three of them had no difficulty seeing what was going on. The light from the craft was not only bright, but it had an unearthly quality that they had never seen before which added to the mystery of the scene. After about a half an hour, the three of them returned to the truck and started back to town. They were hoping to find a way around the muskeg to get a closer look at the strange machine that was parked in the middle of the marsh, miles away from the nearest farmhouse or forest tower. But when they did finally come across a cut-off trail that might take them closer, they realized that they didn't have enough gasoline to take them in and out, so they had to return home for the night. It was not until a couple of nights later when they were able to make a return trip out. It was a clear night with almost a full moon, and they hoped to get an even better view. But this night, the object was gone. There was no trace of the glowing craft that they had seen from the same vantage point just two nights before, so they returned to the truck to await dawn. When the sun came up, they walked back across the muskeg to see if there was any evidence of what they had seen. And there was. There were six large square imprints that must have been from the bases of the legs from the craft that proved there was something there that night. Each imprint was the same size, two to two and a half feet square, and approximately five to ten feet apart. The imprints were two to three inches deep, and it reminded them of some sort of mark that had been made by a boilerplate that had been stamped into the ground. They could also clearly see the markings where the base of the stairway had met the ground. And as if this weren't remarkable enough, they could clearly see a great burn mark in the center that covered an area that was approximately twelve feet in diameter. They looked around for any footprints, but they couldn't find any. Just some scuffling in the vegetation surrounding the spot where the craft had been. This time, the trio was prepared. One of the witnesses had brought along a small brownie box camera, and they took photographs of the burn marks and the imprints. 
Later, two of them wrote up an article about the whole affair and submitted it, along with the copies of the photos, to several magazines and newspapers in Canada. But none of the publications were interested. The few publishers that even replied jokingly asked what kind of party they had been involved in that night. In the 40-plus years since the incident occurred, the original photographs have been lost by the witnesses who took them. And they learned the hard way that apparently no one was interested in their story. Near Edinburgh, Scotland, 1935. Wing Commander Victor Goddard flew a Hawker biplane to Edinburgh from his home base in Andover, England for a weekend visit. On the Sunday before flying back, Goddard visited an abandoned airfield in Drim near Edinburgh, this location being closer to his final destination than the airport at which he'd landed. The Drim airfield, constructed during the First World War, was in shambles. The tarmac and four hangars were in disrepair. Barbed wire divided the field into numerous pastures, and cattle grazed everywhere. It was now a farm and completely useless as an airfield. On Monday, Goddard began his flight back to his home base. The weather was dark and ominous with low clouds and heavy rain. Goddard was flying in an open cockpit over mountainous terrain without radio navigation aids or cloud-flying instruments. The rain beating down on his forehead and onto his flying goggles badly obscured his vision. He thought that he could climb above the clouds, but he was wrong. He made it to 8,000 feet looking for a break in the clouds. But there was none. Suddenly, Goddard lost control of his plane. It began to spiral downward. He struggled with the controls. He could speed up or slow down, but he could not stop the spin. Stay tuned for more Backwoods Horror Stories. We'll be right back after these messages. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. He was unaware of his location, but he knew he was falling rapidly and that he might smash into the mountains before coming out of the clouds. The sky became darker, the clouds turning a strange yellowish brown. The rain came down even more heavily. Goddard's altimeter showed that he was only a thousand feet above the ground and dropping rapidly. At 200 feet and still spiraling downward, he began to see a little daylight coming through the murky gloom, but his spiral towards seemingly inevitable death was far from over. 
Goddard was now flying at 150 miles per hour. He emerged from the clouds over rotating water that he recognized as the Firth of Forth. He was still falling. Suddenly, he saw directly before him a stone seawall with a path, a road, and railings on top of it. The road seemed to be slowly rotating from left to right. The cloud cover was down to 40 feet. Goddard was now flying below 20 feet and was within an instant of tragedy. A young girl with a baby carriage ran through the pouring rain. She ducked her head just in time to avoid his wingtip. Goddard succeeded in leveling out his plane after that. He barely missed striking the water after clearing the seawall by only a few feet. He was now flying only several feet above a stony beach. Fog and rain obscured his distant visibility, but Goddard somehow located his position. He identified the road to Edinburgh, and soon he was able to discern through the gloom the black silhouettes of the Drim airfield hangars ahead of him, the same airfield he had visited the day before. The rain became a deluge and the sky grew even darker, and Goddard's plane was shaken violently by the turbulent weather as it sped towards the Drim hangars and into a different world. Suddenly the sky turned bright with golden sunlight. The rain in the farm had vanished. Suddenly the hangars on the tarmac appeared to have been somehow rebuilt to a brand new condition. There was four planes lined up at the end of the tarmac. Three were standard Avro 504N trainer biplanes. The fourth was a monoplane of an unknown type. And I should point out that the Royal Air Force had no monoplanes in 1935. All four of the planes were painted bright yellow. This stood out to Goddard because no RAF planes were painted yellow in 1935. The airplane mechanics were wearing blue overalls which also seemed strange because all RAF mechanics who worked in the hangars in 1935 wore brown overalls. It took Goddard only an instant to fly over the airfield, and he was only a few feet off the ground, just high enough to clear the hangars, but it seemed that none of the mechanics saw or even heard his plane. As he sped away from the airfield, he was once again engulfed by a storm. He forced his plane upward, flying at 17,000 feet, and then for a time at 21,000 feet. Somehow he weathered the storm and was able to return safely to his home base. Goddard was elated when he landed, and then he made the mistake of telling his fellow officers about his eerie experience. They all looked at him as if he were drunk or crazy. Goddard decided to keep silent about what had happened to him. He did not want to be discharged from the RAF on mental grounds. In 1939, Goddard watched as RAF trainer planes began to be painted yellow, and the mechanics switched to blue coveralls. The RAF introduced a new training monoplane exactly like the one he had seen on the flight over Drim. It was called the Magister. He later learned that the airfield at Drim had been refurbished. Another 27 years went by, but Goddard never forgot what had happened. He played it through in his mind over and over, but it wasn't until 1966 when he finally wrote about his experience. An American Haunting More than 40 years ago, a family in New England started to experience a series of terrifying events that would seek to drive them from their home. Most families who went through what they went through would have fled their house, but this family did not. The series of weird events took place in the late 1970s through the early 1980s. Websites devoted to this legend don't seem to specify the location, but simply state that this family lived in a New England town. Paranormal researchers have also decided not to disclose the actual name of the family in order to protect their privacy. 
Instead, investigators have given them the last name Barini, and their first names have also been changed for anonymity. It all started when the father, Joe Barini, decided to move his family into his ancestral home in the unnamed New England town. Joe had grown up in this house, and some of his family members had died there. Joe moved into the house with his wife, Rose, and her two children from a previous marriage, John and Daisy. One night in May of 1979, Rose reported hearing a strange, disembodied voice in the house. She said it sounded like that of a little girl. The first time she heard it, it said, Mama, Mama, this is Serena. No one in the Barini family knew anyone named Serena, and they didn't know what the message might mean. But later, Joe learned that his father had a sister named Serena who had died in the house at the age of five, more than 50 years before. The very next day after Rose heard Serena's voice, her daughter Daisy was taken for a scheduled appointment to have her tonsils taken out. But something went terribly wrong during the surgery and Daisy's heart failed and she nearly died on the operating table. The girl's voice was heard on several more occasions and it appeared to become an omen that something bad would happen soon. The family heard the voice the night before Joe's grandmother suffered a stroke and again right before his grandmother passed away. On another occasion, Joe was awakened by Serena's voice to find his wife Rose choking in her sleep. When he woke her up, Rose said that she had been having a nightmare about her ex-husband trying to strangle her. Then, as quickly as the ghostly voice had began, it stopped. From late 1979 until March of 1981, the family encountered nothing that would be considered out of the ordinary. But in the spring of 81, a new series of weird phenomena would start to haunt the Barinis. One night, Rose was startled by seeing the ghost of a small boy dressed completely in white walking upstairs in the hallway. The boy's spirit would appear again just a week and a half later. This time he spoke to Rose. He said, where do all the lonely people go? Where do I belong? Joe would also see the mysterious boy in white. He went to the place where the ghost appeared and he began to check it out. Curious, Joe pulled up the floorboards and found a medallion of the Virgin Mary underneath. He remembered that his father's younger brother, called Giorgio, had died in the house at the age of eight. The boy was buried in an all-white suit from his first communion. The spirit of Giorgio began to appear frequently to Joe and Rose over the next few months. The ghost would respond to their questions and he seemed distressed. He would mention family members that Joe had not thought about for a long time. As the ghost vanished for the last time, the telephone next to Joe and Rose's bed was thrown off the night table by some invisible force. This incident would mark the beginning of the weird poltergeist activity that would terrorize the Barinis in the weeks and months to come. The violence seemed to come from a spirit they called the minister. He appeared to have a hunched back and he was decked out in a cape, and he referred to himself as the minister of God. But it would turn out that he was anything but. The entire family was assaulted. The children were smacked, Rose was hit in the head with the freezer door, and a lamp levitated from her bed and was tossed on the hardwood floor below. Once at dinner, her head was grabbed and pulled to one side and she began to choke. At the same time, one of her arms began to twist and bend by itself behind her back. The Barinis finally decided to flee their house after their bed started shaking and knives started flying everywhere. After this, an exorcism was performed and the Barinis were able to move back into their house, never experiencing anything out of the ordinary. Trumbull County, Ohio, 2002 Joseph and his old friend Tori decided to head up to the abandoned Brookfield Air Force Base to do some shooting. 
There was light snow on the ground as they made their way through the woods following a deer path to the wire fence. Joseph noted that it was unusually quiet as they walked through the woods. No sounds of animals, no wind, no nothing. At the time, he didn't think much of it, but looking back, he believes it was strange enough that he remembered it. After finding and crawling through a hole in the fence, they eventually made their way onto the base, walking through the deep, knee-high grass. As they walked towards the building, they began to hear a beeping sound, which they found odd, given that the buildings hadn't had power since the 1980s. As they got within about five feet of the building, the beeps increased and became louder. They eventually made their way through an open bay door, and this is when the beeping went crazy. Tori became frightened, and Joseph noted that there were two doors leading into rooms, one of which was closed. Again, he found this odd because every time they had been there, both of the doors had been open. The beeping was coming from the room where the door was closed, so despite Tori's misgivings, Joseph kicked open the door and went in. The beep slowly faded out and was replaced by a loud droning sound. Joseph noticed a device sitting on the floor about three meters away. He thought at first it was a pipe bomb. It looked like an air compressor with wires on its left side going into a rectangular black box with a cylinder attached to it. Joseph had no idea what it was. He wondered if maybe the police or the Marines had maybe put it there during some training exercise. Either way, Tori was scared and he insisted that they leave. Joseph also had the same feeling. They decided to make their way back to the fence, and as they made their way through the tall grass, things got very quiet. They both stopped dead in their tracks, with the sense that they were being watched. Suddenly, they could hear footsteps coming through the overgrown brush. That's when they both noticed that snow was bouncing up and the grass and bushes were parting as if something were coming through the grass. Joseph could see the outline of what appeared to be a human, but it was transparent. He was able to see right through it. He could see the brush on either side of it, but it was distorted like some sort of optical illusion. Both men became frightened and headed for the fence. They both kept an eye on whatever it was as they moved. They noted that there were clear impressions in the snow and the brush and snow were moving as if someone were trudging through the grass, but they couldn't see anything outside of an outline. Even stranger, Joseph claimed that it seemed to have completely vanished occasionally and then it would come back. It trailed them the entire time, but it never got closer than 30 feet away from them, except when they neared the fence. At one point, Joseph stopped and raised his rifle at this thing, and it clearly seemed to anger whatever it was. He said there was some brush that stood about 15 feet high, and it separated like someone drove a truck through it. It was coming hard. The snow and the brush were flying everywhere. Joseph aimed at it, but for the first time ever as a hunter, he felt a real sense of dread and something told him not to shoot at it. Tori also told him not to shoot because he thought it would only make it worse. They eventually found the hole in the fence, and by this time, this thing was sprinting towards them. The two men rushed through the hole and into the woods, keeping their eyes on the creature. Joseph noticed that it stopped at the fence. It was almost as if it weren't allowed to leave. Then it was gone, like it evaporated. Three weeks later, Joseph returned with another friend, and they spent hours searching through the abandoned building but they never found the beeping device, nor did they see the entity again. Looking back, Joseph senses that the thing that they encountered was something evil and that it meant to do them harm. He likened his sighting to the alien in the movie Predator, but noted that, while it was similar, it wasn't the same.
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.